Thanks, uh, Chris, very much indeed. Continue then in our series, uh, I Relate, which we've been reminding ourselves that life in the end, or at the beginning, at its heart, at its core, is all about relationships. There is a relationship that lies at the very heart of the universe, at the heart of who God is, from which everything else makes sense and is given meaning. That relationship that impacts our relationships and puts them into their rightful context. Uh, And so no more so, again, will we see this morning in this area of parenting that we need to understand that it all comes from God first. So as we move on to parenting, uh, uh, let's be aware, as perhaps we have these last couple of Sundays, that we tread uh, carefully. Emotions are no less heightened in this subject than perhaps they were in the previous two. Maybe more so. Parenting brings great joy. It can also bring to our lives uh, uh, unbelievable amounts of worry and anxiety. And sometimes it can bring to our lives excruciating pain. Some people might be deeply troubled today about their children. Their children might be 5 or 15 or 55. It doesn't matter. We may be delighting this morning at where our children are or deeply grieved over the choices that they've made. In other ways, this whole issue is difficult also because you long to be a parent and at the moment you aren't or may now never be in a human sense. This might be difficult because your children have recently left home and that's a bereavement that you're still working through and processing and dealing with. Some of us have had agonizing trauma concerning our children of illnesses and some have faced even the death of our own children. And what makes all of this so hard is that there are no quick fixes, there's no magic wands, and there's no instant results. But I want to somehow this morning, just to plug into, you give me just two minutes while I hug my daughter, and then I'll be right back, yeah? Being a parent sucks, I can tell you. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we get into this together? Would you help us? Would you help us to plug into you? You are the Father. You said, call me Father. Know me as the parent who gives all parenting meaning and purpose. So help us, we pray. Amen. Okie dokie, I'll try and concentrate just for a little while. Here we go. What is then the parenting task? What is it? What's it all about? I want you to turn perhaps to the person next to you uh, just for a moment, just 30 seconds. What are you trying to achieve with your children between the ages of 0 and 18? Or, Or perhaps some children that you, what should a parent, if that doesn't apply to you or did apply to you, what did you try to do? So between the ages of 0 to 18, what are we trying to achieve with our children? What are we trying to do? What is the parenting task? 
Go. I've got five days before Rachel's 18, so what do I need to do in those five days to mark it off uh, as uh, a result? I, I suspect in our conversations we've begun to tease out a variety of different answers. Something about helping them feel secure and loved, I would imagine we've talked about. Something about building their self-esteem. Something about making sure they maximize or get the best education that they can. Something about teaching them certain moral values, principles, codes for life. And of course, something about the love of God and wanting them to come to Christ. Now all of those are absolutely fantastic things that every parent and every community longs for its children. But I want to question what the underlying assumption is in that whole process. In our house, on times we joke, especially after a bad day, how many years left to turn these pesky kids into responsible adults. It can look hopeless on times, like in any home. It reveals an assumption, I suggest, that what we're striving for in those first 18 years, or however long it might be, is for them to become independent. We want to give our children the skills in order that they can come, as it were, out from under our dependency on us, out from under our provision, in order that they might live well and independently in the world. Therefore, we want them to have a good education so that they can do that. We want their moral values and compass to be strong so they can do that. We want them to have a relationship with Jesus so that they can become responsible adults and move from being dependent on us as parents to being independent in the world. So the task of parenting then is often viewed, isn't it, like that? We take a baby, totally dependent on you, and as they grow, we teach them to become independent. For a while, you dressed them. There came a day you expected them to dress themselves. For a while, you walked with them to school, and there came a day when they walked by themselves. My favourite question of Lucy Earle at the moment, Claire and Rich, Claire, our youth minister, Lucy's three, Sam is three weeks old. Lucy, what does Sam do? She looks at me with the contempt that only a three-year-old can. He sleeps and he cries. In other words, he does absolutely nothing, really. So is that Claire and Rich's task, to move Sam, three weeks old, totally dependent, to become independent? No. No. And you can begin to see why when you change the words around. What is independence? Independence is dependence on self. 
Independence is dependence on self. What do we know about dependence on self? We know that the Bible teaches that the root of all sin is dependence on self. Dependence on self is a catastrophic mistake. It is the way we uh, uh, see, the effects that we see all around us, the way in which our world lives, that we're longing to call people out of. Parenting is not moving our children from dependence on us to independence or dependence on self. Parenting is moving our children from dependence on us towards dependence on God. Towards dependence on God. And of course that makes perfect sense if real life, if the only real way to live is to live connected with the God who made them and loves them. This is eternal life, said Jesus, that they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To live in complete and utter trust, not on you anymore, but on the God who made them and loves them. For a while, you are God in the flesh. And that's a scary thought for every parent. You are the one they're beginning to learn to trust that they might fully one day, more gloriously, put their trust not in a frail human parent, but an infallible, eternal Father God. And here it is, right in Deuteronomy. hope you've got it open. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to uh, bounce back in into some of these verses uh, together this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, just to get some context. God has given Moses the big ten, the ten commandments. He's talking to the people about how they're going to live when they set up home in, this, in their new land. Verse 1 of chapter 6. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you and your children may what? May fear the Lord as long as you live. Not fear in a, I'm scared, terrified. Fear in a, I'm awestruck. Eugene Peterson translates it, deep reverence. The NIV scholars that work on the translations of the NIV talk about the word meaning a a reverential trust and awe that leads to utter commitment. This is the God who's so faithful and so amazing. My response can be nothing else but to trust him with all that I am, all that I have. Deuteronomy 6, these are the commands that you must observe that you might fear that you might trust the Lord, that you might be utterly dependent on him in every way. That's the goal for our children. That they might learn a dependence that rests solely on God. Of course, that doesn't mean that all the other things that we listed aren't important. They are absolutely important and really good things that we long for each one of our children. But if we make some or all of those things our goal, we might find ourselves actually missing the parenting target. Do ballet. Become a brilliant footballer. Excel at a musical instrument. Get the best results at school. Go to scouts and sea cadets and learn to sail. Get a part-time job. Earn some money. Travel the world. Our children maybe can do more, achieve more than we've ever dreamed of, but we must never forget 
Jesus said something about gaining the whole world and forfeiting your own soul. Giving them everything else will never be a substitute for giving them the one thing that they can never do without, the parenting task. And we must not forget in that, in these verses, the parenting legacy. Your children, children, and their children. As we pour into our children, it's not just for their sake, for their generation, it's for the generation to come and the generation after that. It was Jesus' strategy, wasn't it? Take 12, take a few, pour himself into them, that they might go and pour themselves into others. Some of you are grandparents, great-grandparents, and you're just amazed where all the people came from when you have a family gathering. You remember the day when there was just you, and then there were two of you, and then you had your first child, and now before you know it, there are too many grandchildren, great-grandchildren to fit in your home. The legacy of parenting can be enormous, which means we must take the parenting responsibility very seriously. And as we look at the parenting responsibility that's set out for us here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we know that from all the statistics, that youth ministries, children's ministries, Christian clubs, events, however fantastic and brilliant they are, and we're blessed beyond words in this church for those things. But in the end, the biggest impact on children's faith, by miles, is what happens at home, is you. And that makes sense. Your children are born utterly dependent upon you. The parenting task is to transfer that dependence from you onto God. You are perfectly placed. It is in God's design that your influence on your children should be and is huge. As a parent, it's your call. Impress these things on your children. It's not a command for Sunday school teachers or for youth workers a cry to parents. And you can see as you read on, the place where you are to do this is not at the Sunday school. And it's not at the synagogue. However important those things might be in our rhythm and life together. Where do you impress? As you walk along the road. As you get up and lie down. Sometimes it feels like you're getting up in church and going to sleep in church. But believe me, that's not what he meant. As you get up in your home, as you lie down, as you go about your daily life. It's your call. So what is that call? Number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. See it there in verse four. Sets the context for what's coming next. Hear, O Israel, Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Do your children know that you loved God with all your heart? Ten is that they do. Zero is that they haven't got a clue. What would your score be? Do you know, do your children know that you love God with all your heart? What's the score in your mind just now? And as you think about that, it's really easy for that question to merge with other questions and other issues. The question is not, do my children know that I love church? Or do my children know that I love singing worship music or whatever type of music? 
Do my children know that I love the Bible study, that I'll never miss it? Do my children know that I, I, I love helping out at church, so I'll, I'll, I'll always be there on a whatever occasion? Do your children know that you love God with all your heart, with everything? That is our primary responsibility as parents. It's very tempting, isn't it, to buy into all the self-esteem, self-help stuff of our generation and say that the first thing that our children need is to know that we love them with all of our hearts. The Bible doesn't teach that. The first thing that our children need to know is that you love God with all, with all of your heart. And they need to know it's with everything. They need to see that the love that you say you have for God makes a difference in every part, not just some part of your life. That it affects everything, all your strength. Our current culture maybe makes this even more important than it has been in previous generations. Previous generations, the kind of key word was authority. As they grow up, they would be aware of who was in authority. You wouldn't cross your headmaster because he was in authority. You wouldn't cross your dad or even your mum because they were in authority. The key word was authority. Millennials, those born around 2000 and so on, don't care too much about authority. I'm not saying that's good or bad. And that's to the despair of other generations. There's a different word. What they're looking for is authenticity. Does this join up? Not who's in charge. Does this join up? Is this authentic? Children, and perhaps they've always been good at this, can sniff out duplicity faster than a rescue mountain dog can sniff out someone trapped on the side of a mountain. If you say you love God, but it's only part of your life, if it only impacts part of who you are, you might be creating a very difficult environment for your children to also learn to love God because they'll sense the duplicity. Millennials are the most connected generation by miles and they'll spot our disconnect. For the last couple of years, I've received a letter in September from my doctor. I don't read you all my letters from my doctor, but I'll read you this one. Dear Mr. Harris, as part of our service, we wish to offer the winter flu vaccination to all our patients over the age of 65. (laughs) We've made an appointment for you on such and such and look forward to seeing you. If for any reason you cannot make the appointment or do not want the vaccination, then please contact the surgery. So a little tradition now follows. I ring up the surgery. Hello, you've invited me for a flu jab. Yes, I'm not over 65. Are you sure? I think so. I'm about 42. Are you really sure you don't want the flu jab? I think so. If I was to have the flu jab, what would they give me to protect me from the flu? They'd give me a little bit of flu. And that would inoculate me from the full-blown thing. Do we give our children a little bit of love for God? And does that sometimes inoculate them from the real thing? Do they see our love for God on Sundays, but sometimes it not making enough of a difference on Mondays? The best thing we can do for our children is to love God with all of our hearts. Yesterday, Saturday, how did your love for God show itself to your children? 
We need to love God with all of our hearts. And when we ourselves are not wholly dependent on him, when we ourselves are not sold out in, a, in, in, in life-giving passion for him that affects everything that we do, we're just giving them a little bit. Then maybe we're inoculating them, vaccinating them against the real thing. Parenting responsibility is to love God with all of your heart, soul, and with all your strength. Secondly, parenting responsibility is to lead uh, your family. The agenda, the foundation, the heartbeat is about God. Impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Uh, Write them on the door frames and on your gates. Every time you go out, every time you come in, every time you meet together, every time you talk together, let these things saturate your ordinary, everyday life. Why? So that you might lead your family in the ordinary, everyday life. One commentator puts it rather tongue-in-cheek. He's amazed how many parents obey their children. Now, most of us will react against that as if that is never allowed to happen, as if that's a role reversal that we would not tolerate in our home. But a slightly different question, who sets the agenda in your home? Who is leading who? Are your children being led or are they leading you, who sets the standard. It's, it's so easy and so subtly for our children to start leading in our home. So easy for their friends, even, to start leading in our home. Can I have a mobile phone? I'm in year six. I'm in year five. I, I, I'm in year four. I'll have a mobile phone. Because everyone in my class has got a mobile phone. All my friends are allowed to go to the Why can't I? Who's leading who, then? They've all watched it. They'll all be staying out late. No one needs picking up. Who's leading who? But it challenges our insecurities. Turn to the person next to you and just say to them, do you know what? We're all insecure. Some of us are just better at hiding it, perhaps, than others. And this is the way our insecurity plays out in our parenting. You see, we desperately want to fit in because we're insecure, which means we exponentially desperately need and want our children to fit in for two reasons. If they don't fit in, we know how painful it is for them because we know what that pain's like for us and we don't want that for them. But also, if our children don't fit in, we think that it reflects bad on us, that somehow, therefore, we're not fitting in because our children aren't fitting in, and we don't want that either. So we all want our children to be normal. Hands up if you want your children to be normal. You'll pray for normal children. That's what we want. We want our children to be normal. We don't want them to be the only one who hasn't seen the film. We don't want them to be the only one who hasn't got that colour chino. We don't want to be the only parent who doesn't let our child use BBM or go on Facebook until they're 13 or uh, share music that's illegal. We want our children to be normal. But let's be absolutely clear, normal isn't working. Normal isn't working. 
weird might work. It's time to be weird. Normal isn't working. It's time to be weird and proud of it. It's time to be weird and to lead our children as weird, and it's weird, they'll tell you how weird it is, as weirdly as God calls us to, because normal ain't working. Train a child in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. It's a principle, not a promise. And I think the word train is hanak, I think is the, the, the Hebrew word. Someone will correct me afterwards, and that's fine. Um, uh, but it's to do with the palate at the top of the mouth. And Jewish babies would put something, Jewish babies, Jewish mothers or Jewish midwives would put something sweet on the palate of the baby's mouth after birth to stimulate their hunger in order that they would begin to feed. Will you train, will you hanak, will you stimulate, incite your children to long for a life that's weird compared to the normality that's around us? Because normal isn't working. Who can entice them to live a different way? You can. With a life radically devoted from God to, to God that impacts every part of who you are, where God is alive and real, where God takes you on a daily adventure of faith, you can call them with you to a life that is bigger than themselves, to a life that calls them to share in something bigger than themselves. And millennials, more than any other generation in recent history, want to be committed to something that's bigger than themselves. They will not sit in our churches and do the stuff that we used to do. They want to reach for something higher than that. It's not that that thing is is wrong at all, but they're they're looking to be part of something. They're looking. They've got a a shape uh, uh, differently in in a way. I don't know why this has happened, but it has happened. And they're, they're reaching for something beyond themselves. And they don't think they can find it here. And we've got to respond to that. Because if we've got a life, a journey, an adventure that is bigger than ourselves, if we haven't, nobody else has. Amen, would have been okay, slightly appropriate at that point. So there is a time like now to call our children to something bigger and better and greater than we've even ever believed for ourselves. To give them a glimpse of God's kingdom living. That's our parental responsibility. And very quickly as we come into land, the parenting mindset Three things that come from a little moment with Jesus. Just some pegs to hang our thoughts on. Matthew chapter 19. You might want to turn to it. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew's in the New Testament. If you open your Bible about three quarters of the way through, you'll hit it. Nine eighty-six. Thank you. Verse 13, people were bringing uh, little children to uh, Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Three words, first word, time. Disciples are going, we haven't got time for this. These are just kids. We haven't got time. Jesus was indignant, kind of posh word that says he was furious. Jesus had time. We need time. 
as an expression for your love for God, is family first, your primary ministry, your first act of service? Do you build family, make family time happen, plan it, invest in it? Is it a priority? Now, none of these things are easy. You can read a hundred books on how to do it, and if that helps, read a hundred books on how to do it. The question is, are we doing that? Are we organizing our lives that say, this unit, this set of relationships that we only have for a season, it'll be gone before we've blinked, are we investing appropriately in this set of, in this season of relationships that God has given to us? First word, time. Second word, touch. He took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Appropriate physical touch is ever so important. A young baby needs to be touched and held simply in order to grow. Teenage daughters need to be hugged and held. Young boys need to be wrestled and embraced. Touch is really important. And I just say, if there's not much physical touch in the appropriate sense going on, and the world makes a shock of, of, of all of this area of our lives. But if there's not much touch, then is there a sign that the distance between us is greater than it should be? But there's also emotional touch, isn't there? How often do you emotionally touch your children? You know, those when you tuck them into bed moments and, uh, and, and they, just as you're wanting to turn the light out, Dad, and something comes. And in those moments, you touch each other's heart. Mom. Or when they're older and you've gone to bed, and they come and sit on your bed, pesky kids. Mum, Dad. We need to touch to connect. So, so when was, how often does that happen with each of your children? I've had to work hard with Evan lately in this regard. Please don't mention this to him or I'll track you down and rip you from limb to limb. But just as a, as a, as a help maybe to some of us. He says to me recently, stop saying, yes, yes, yes. Why? He says, when you say, yes, 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 it feels like you're not listening to me. Dad's rumbled. Dad's somewhere else. Physically there, but somewhere else. I'm caught up in something else. Something that probably by the next day I'll hardly remember what it was. But in that moment, I've missed the moment to touch, to connect, heart to heart. When was the last time you connected in that way? Finally, third word, talk. He blessed them. We need to talk to our children. Seems obvious, doesn't it? But really talk to them, to invite them into our journey of faith, to talk to them about who you are witnessing to. Talk to them about prayers that God is answering for you or that you're longing for him to answer for you. Talk about the areas where you're trusting God. Explain to them why those people keep coming round your house that they can't stand. It's because God's placed them on your heart. Involve them in the, in the mission, the journey of faith that you're in. Otherwise, they will not have a clue what the journey of faith is all about. Celebrate with them God's provision. I think this is an area we've been on quite a journey, uh, Kerry and I, because instinctively we would seek to protect our children by not sharing a lot of life with them. Do you understand? 
So, so, so we wouldn't talk about things because we want to protect them. Now, as they get older, that gets less appropriate. But also, I think our understanding is beginning to change. That in an appropriate way, it's time to let them into the struggles, the challenges, the tensions. Might not be anything of the detail, but the fact that these things exist. How you're trusting God for them. How you're responding to God in them. Who you're seeking to share faith with. When it's gone well, when it hasn't gone well. Talk to our children. Celebrate God's provision. Uh, a year ago, uh, ish, 18 months, I don't know, um, uh, uh, my, my car, remember my yellow car? It died. Just like that. It didn't warn me, it didn't tell me, made no announcement. Outside the front, late one Sunday evening, it didn't work. And uh, got towed away to the uh, car funeral place. A bit more sympathy, can't see it. Anyway, um, we, we didn't have any money to buy another car, so that was kind of the end of that. So we're starting a journey of trusting God for what he's going to do next about a car. It was the summer, we could walk a lot, that was fine, all good, winter was coming, what are we going to do about a car? Started engaging with that as a family, this is a, a family need. Well, what's it like to trust God for what you perceive you need? And so we're on this journey, at the back of our minds we know that some insurance money's coming uh, from, from that accident uh, we were involved in some years back, thinking that will probably sort it out. So we're trusting God, telling the kids we're trusting God, we've got a bit of a backhander here. Have you ever done that as a parent? Yeah, do you know, sort of a bit, a bit, so this is going on, trusting God. Anyway, the money came through just in time, praise the Lord. And Kerry and I were in different parts of the country and God spoke to us both one morning and said, give it away. Yeah, I said, more than that. <laughs> I was livid. And I tell you, if God says it, there's only one thing you can do. It's not big, it's not clever, there's nothing impressive about it. Don't hang on to something when God says, get rid of it. So we're saying to the kids, we're going to give this away because God's asking us to give. Now, now that's hard. And then God met our needs a few weeks later. But our instinct would have been not to have shared the journey with our children. Did you hear me? Because we just don't want them to be worried about money and finances and provision and, and stuff. So... Uh, but actually, there's something about, guys, this is the journey of faith. This is what it means to trust God. This is what it means to rely on him. And, and what, what's the result of that? All our faith source. And we can trust God in a way as a family that perhaps we couldn't have before. Praying with our children openly so that they can hear our prayers, so that they can understand what it's like to commune with God and, and, and he with us. You know, we're, we're, we're into silent prayers aren't we amen and kids grow up thinking that's how you pray amen and they'll copy you that's a scary thing so one of our children as we're praying when they were at the right age would just go hmm 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 and I think for heaven's sake why are you going hmm 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 when we're trying to pray as a family it's because when someone's praying I'm going hmm 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 uh, so they're learning how to pray just by my grunts. And you think, goodness me, something more profound has to come out of my mouth if I'm going to help these kids to learn to pray. Speaking in tongues over your children. So one of us, when they were five, what's that? Speaking in tongues. What's that? It's a language God gives to have you pray. Can God give me that? Yes. Let's pray to Jesus. Pray to Jesus. I, I, I sense a couple of words. Speak those words out. You get a five-year-old learning to speak in tongues. And it's way easier than when they're 15 and 55 to learn when you're five. 
But it's something about talking. It's something about getting it out for our children. Otherwise, they have no idea. And we expect them to learn by some kind of osmosis. And in the midst of some of the little successes, there are massive failures, aren't there, for all of us? And I'd like you to turn to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea is kind of somewhere in the middle. Psalms is a bit off to the left, and then Hosea is a bit further on. 907, is that the one? Brilliant. Parenting can be a nightmare, can't it? The parenting God, God knows and understands. Have you ever thought about this? God knows the joy of seeing Adam flourish, seeing Adam alive and purposeful in the garden. God knows the joy of seeing Adam find Eve and just go, wow, that's a woman. That's what I've been looking for. I've named all those animals, but this is what I need. God knows the joy of that. He knows the agony of watching his children make wrong choices. The pain of watching them go places he never wanted them to go. Challenge of discipline. And God knows what it's like to wait for your prodigal to come home. And here we see God's heart as a parent in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, verse 1, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Hear God's heart. My heart, my emotional well-being is tied up in this child, Israel. Israel being the people of God. I I loved them and and I called them out of Egypt. Sometimes uh, they did their own thing. Sometimes they went their own way. And the more I called them, the more I rang them. I even tried to Facebook them. But they still went away, verse 2. The more I called Israel, the further they went from me. Some of us know that pain. The more we long, the worse it seemed to get. They sacrificed to the bulls. They, they did things good Christian boys and girls shouldn't do. They burned incense to images. Don't they understand How could they be so wayward when I've poured my life into them? How could they be so ungrateful? What mother hasn't been totally exasperated by their children having cooked a healthy meal to be told how disgusting it is? Verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. Don't they realize how much I've done for them? I taught them to walk, I taught them to speak, I taught them to ride a bike. It's weird, don't you think? We teach our kids to walk and talk and then spend the rest of their childhood telling them to sit down and shut up. (laughs) Just a thought. Verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. I'm the one who was there for them. When they grazed their knee, I I wiped their, their, their tears and I put ointment on their knees. I provided security for them. Verse 5, will they not return to Egypt? So I've done all this for my children and still they're wayward, still they're going off. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to come back, refuse to pen, repent? Why won't they come back to me? A sword, verse 6, will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me even though they call me God Most High. Some of you have watched and you've seen your children make choices and it's taken them metaphorically to swords, where, to, to cities where swords flash, and the places where they've got devout. 
and your heart's gone out to them there. And notice what God's saying. He's saying, uh, they've done all this. It would be easier now for me to give them up, to forget about them. I I can't cope with the the pain, the, the worry, the anguish that they keep bringing back to me. But how? How can I give you up? And how can I just hand you over and say, I'm not going to be for you, I'm not going to be there for you anymore. How can I treat you like, a, like the, 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 the sinful, uh, forgotten, forsaken peoples? I want to strike you out to cut you off, but I can't. I love you too much. Verse 8, towards the end, 8c, my heart is changed within me, all my compassion is aroused. I'll not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. I am God and not man. And to the prodigals, God trusts for the day when they will come back, just like we do. Verse 10, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Beautiful promise for the children that we're longing for. Your children might be five or 55 or more. Children that we're longing for. God longs and waits for the day that they'll come home. 